Hello, everybody. Alex Sobel, co-founder of Millennium Alliance, back at you with a special treat today. We've got Jonathan Gruber on the podcast today. Some of you may be familiar with him. Some of you may not. I sure am familiar with him and his work. I got a lot of good questions lined up for him. I hope he's ready. Just to give you a background for those of you who, do, who don't know, Dr. Gruber is currently the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. So for MIT listeners out there, you've got a, a fellow MIT person here talking with me. He's been teaching there for 30 years. He's also the director of the healthcare program at the National Bureau of Economic Research and is the former president of the American Society of Health Economists. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the National Academy of Social Insurance, and the Economic Metrics Society. John has published more than 175 research articles, has edited six research volumes, and is the author of Public Finance and Public Policy, a leading undergraduate text, a lot of other things that we'll put out as well that he's published and that he's worked on that you can read about or even read if you would like. During the 1997-1998 academic year, he was on leave as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department. And from 03 to 06, he was a key architect of the Massachusetts ambitious healthcare reform, better known as Romney Care, which we're going to talk about. And he became an inaugural member of the Health Connector Board, the main implementing body for that effort. A lot of you may be familiar with John's name because during the 09 and 2010 years, he served as a technical consultant to the Obama administration and worked with both the administration and Congress to help craft the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare. In 2011, he was named one of the top 25 most innovative and practical thinkers of our time by Slate Magazine. Both in 06 and 2012, he was rated as one of the 100 most powerful people in healthcare in the United States by Modern Healthcare Magazine. So a lot more I could go about his background, but I want to use the time wisely today. John, welcome to the podcast. We are thrilled to have you. Thanks so much. Good to be here. John, like I do with a lot of guests that I personally interview, in addition to talking about the stuff that you're most known for, which we're definitely going to get into, going to have a lot of good questions around that. We like to dive in and talk to people about where they're from and what their upbringing is like and how they got to where they got to mm -hmm. and how did you focus, how did you know where to focus especially before you entered college. As I understand, you're a fellow Bergen County guy, Absolutely. grew up not too far from me in Ridgewood, New Jersey. If you can, maybe describe for our listeners what growing up in Northern New Jersey was like, what your parents did, if you had any siblings, and what generally your upbringing from early years to before you went to college was like, I think would be a good start. Sure. So I have two sisters. My mom stayed at home and raised us. And my father was actually a professor of finance at the Stern School at NYU. So I grew up in a very academic household. You know, there was no question I'd go to college. I can't imagine a world where, like, we even think I wouldn't go to college. Academic success was valued very highly. I was sort of your prototypical suburban nerd, played Dungeons and Dragons, probably would have been into uh, manga if we had it at that time. You know, that that kind of suburban nerd. It's, it's you know, it's growing up in a town like Richard, New Jersey, the public schools are essentially private school quality. They're excellent sure. schools. So I had all the advantages. Great parents who really pushed me academically, incredible schools. But I wouldn't say I was like driven with a passion towards any one subject. I was just sort of a hard worker. Basically, I was like, look, I'm supposed to do well in school. I'm going to do well in school. I'll work hard, do well in school. But I didn't really have a sort of vision or passion for kind of where I was going with that. Just kind of like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do well in school, so I did well in school. And I'm supposed to go to the best college I got into. And the best college I got into was MIT. It happened to be where my father went. So I went to MIT. And that was kind of a pretty standard suburban, very driven you know, academically driven upbringing. 
And your mom, what, what role did she play? Uh, my mom played a really important role. My mom was a BU graduate. So my dad went to MIT. My mom went to BU. My dad was a very career focused, very hardworking and did not, you know, we didn't spend a huge amount of time with him. It was a different generation. It wasn't like kids and their dads today. Really, my mom fundamentally raised us and was, you know, really important in making sure that we had a safe, secure upbringing, was always home when came from school, that kind of just, just once again, I was incredibly lucky. They had a great marriage, I had great siblings. It was just incredibly lucky in how sort of supportive my environment was in terms of sort of getting me to where I am today. And with your father, was was his only, I don't like to use the word the job, but was his only source of income the work that he was doing at NYU or was he doing other things as well? Uh, before I went to college, my father did some consulting and stuff, but mostly he was a professor. Right about when I went to college, he started broadening his portfolio to be more, he wrote a leading textbook. He started being on more corporate boards. My father's unusual in that most business school professors, by the time they're in their 40s, they kind of don't do much research anymore and go off and are in the corporate world. My father's really a nerd. My father really, like, like he stopped working seven days a week when he was like 70. He always loved being a professor, was passionate. His students are devoted to him, was passionate about academia, passionate about research, but started to get some money-making opportunities on the side in a world where he knew a lot to be on boards for companies. He's one of the most well-known professors in corporate in portfolio theory, basically how people should invest their money. And he wrote oh, sort really? of the leading book. And he wrote the leading book in portfolio theory. And so there was a lot of opportunities for him to go out and help in the real world. And he did. And so, you know, after I went to college, I think he still, his primary focus was still on research and teaching, but he sort of started spread, spreading his wings a bit more, doing more stuff in the real world. Did you feel that when you were looking at colleges, was, was it really that you were just looking at MIT or were you looking at multiple schools? I mean, the rumor was that my father would lean over my crib and whisper MIT in my ear when I was young. <laughs> I wanted to go to an Ivy League school. I got rejected from all of them. I always thought I should have just gotten a postcard with like, you've been rejected from the following Ivy League schools with like a thumbs down shaded in yeah, the background. Yeah. MIT was the clear choice for me. It wasn't my first choice. Brown was the hot school when I was in high school. So I really wanted to go to Brown. Would have so you didn't get into Brown? No, I didn't get to Brown or Harvard. And you got into MIT. Or That's Yale or Princeton or any of those places. You know, my SATs, I was like perfect on math and terrible on English, you know, so... MIT actually changed its admissions criteria right about when I was there. When I arrived, MIT's admissions criteria were almost exclusively on math and science. Not coincidentally, 20% oh, wow. of, of the students were female. Around when I arrived, they changed their criteria to value a broader set of things. And by the time I left, it was 40% female. MIT was an era transition from just really, truly being a math science male nerd population or more well-rounded population. So yes, yeah, so I got an MIT, didn't get into other places. And I'm Incredibly lucky I did because it was a great experience. You get into MIT. Did you get any recommendations from your father as to what to study? No, not really. I mean, I think I went to MIT, like I said, I'm not a typical MIT undergrad, you know, building stuff in my basement and exploding, you know, it, it's you, you vision MIT undergrads as kind of, you know, really intense, you know, since day three, they've been tinkering with the lawnmower motor. And, mm -hmm. you know, now today you picture them as from age five, writing their own computer programs. I guess I wouldn't call myself a super intellectually curious kid. I was just a super intense, hardworking kid. It was just like, okay, I'm supposed to get good grades. I'm going to do what it takes to get good grades. But without really thinking like why I was doing it, it was just kind of, this is what you did. And I was just kind of, that's what I did. I went to MIT, like I was good at math. I didn't really love science, but I was really good at math. So I figured I'd do some math thing at MIT. And then I took an economics class and it was like really eye-opening because I think I really liked the social sciences. I liked history. I liked politics. 
Same. I was like, wow, I can apply math to really interesting questions. I mean, you got to understand, let's get a little background of economics for your listeners who don't know the history of the field. I mean, economics is a field was sort of invented in 1776 when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. But until about World War II, economics was largely sort of almost sort of a descriptive field. It was a lot of intuition, a lot of like, this is the way things should work. The person who changed that was a guy named Paul Samuelson, who really invented modern economics, actually teaching the course I now teach at MIT, uh, oh, wow. or Introductory Microeconomics. That's really he cool. Of, he basically introduced the field of mathematical economics and sort of said, hey, a lot of the things we're saying casually can be formalized and done much more powerfully with the tools of mathematics. So I touched that course, not from him. He'd done teaching at that point. But I took that course and I was like, wow, I can use math for good. Like I can use math, not just for math's sake, like to prove something, to prove it, but to actually use math to answer really interesting questions. It was like this light bulb went off. I still remember taught my girlfriend at the time visiting. I was like so excited talking to her like, oh my God, check out, check this cool thing. I can use this math to answer really interesting questions. And then, so you spent four years at MIT undergrad. Yeah, I spent four years at MIT undergrad. Econ was not a big major there. It was sort of, uh, it was what a, year was this? 83 to 87. Okay. So yeah, so I went to Boston in 83 and basically never left. You've been there uh, since. Yeah, so I went to Bo- I went to MIT's undergrad, loved it. MIT is an unusual place. It still is. I think the best students at MIT are students who like, who can really work hard and play hard, who can work hard, but can also sort of shut it off because otherwise it'll overwhelm you. They like it to drinking from a fire hose. You know, it's really, it's very hard. I think it's much harder, honestly, than most MIT undergrads just work harder than students at other schools. It's, and then students at other non-engineering schools, at least. It's a very, very hard undergraduate experience. So it doesn't work well unless you're able to compartmentalize and turn it off and go have some fun sometimes or you'll drive yourself nuts. And I was able to do that. MIT is actually quite a good party school. People wouldn't understand that. but Yeah. MIT has, we have a lot of fraternities to throw great parties. Were you in Uh, a fraternity? I was not. I was in it. I was in sort of the most social dormitory, but I had a great, great time. Every Friday and Saturday night, there was a party to go to. And the difference was if I compared to typical undergraduate experience, I never took a Wednesday or Thursday night off. So the difference was like I worked all the time, but Friday and Saturday night when I stopped working, there were great, there was great fun stuff to do. So for me, as someone who liked to work hard, but needed to blow off some steam, it was a great combination. Not for everyone, but it was great for me. And uh, so I really enjoyed it. And it was a great education because there weren't many economics majors, but we had probably the best economics faculty in the world. You know, it wasn't like most schools where TAs are teaching the classes. These Nobel Prize caliber professors were teaching the classes and I could just go and chat with them because there was like it was like a one-to-one ratio of undergraduate majors to faculty so it was an incredible undergraduate experience and I got to work directly with many famous professors and and really really enjoyed it It was a great experience so you graduate from MIT what's the next thing that you do so while I was at MIT I was most of I decided fairly early on that I decided I wanted to be a lawyer so that was kind of really I had a rich uncle in Florida who it turns out unbeknownst to me was actually a mob lawyer but no one really knew but all I knew was he was a very rich lawyer yeah. and we'd go to Miami and he would just, we'd walk into the fanciest restaurants, Joe's Crab House or whatever in Miami, yep. just walk to the front of the three hour line. I didn't know, slipped the matri a hundred bucks and we'd be seated. And I was like, wow. And he drove a cherry red uh, Mercedes convertible. I was like, this is the life I want. So I was like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a lawyer. And that's what I want to do. And my dad was like, look, you might not like that. You should consider graduate school and economics. I'm like, I don't know. I like economics. That's a big commitment, but I, to make my dad happy, I applied to both graduate school and economics at the law school. And I got in a lot of places. And then there was a Newsweek to try to hook students on reading Newsweek would send around a little free thing called Newsweek on campus. 
was like a 10-page mini version of Newsweek. And there's an editorial in the back saying, does this describe you? You don't know what you want to do, so you take the LSATs. You do well in the LSATs, so you go to law school. You go to law school, so you become a lawyer, and then you realize you don't like being a lawyer. And I was like, oh my God, I'm two-thirds of the way there. I don't actually want to be a lawyer. At that point, I'd gotten really into politics. What I really wanted to do was be involved in the policy world. Anybody who's listening who read The New Republic in like the 80s and 90s will remember a writer named Louis Menand. Uh, he was a famous sort of writer in the New Republic. His father was my professor. His father, also named Louis Menand, was a very influential professor on me. He was, and he'd been worked in the Great Society and worked in politics. And really, I started getting into politics. This was around the time you graduated from MIT. No, this is around this is around the middle of my MIT experience, sophomore, junior year. I started really getting into that. And in fact, the summer after my junior year, I worked at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. And really loved it. I love D.C. I love the I just loved the politics in the air. I really became a junkie. Like it's just sort of taking his classes. My sophomore year, I'm interested in politics. I decided I wanted to live somewhere different. So I lived in D.C. for the summer after my junior year. And I just had an awesome time. I love Brookings, but I love just the atmosphere in Washington, D.C., the electricity of politics. It wasn't about partisanship. It wasn't about Democrat or Republican back then. I remember I got to go to the White House and watch Ronald Reagan land the helicopter and walk by. And I was very excited to see Ronald Reagan walk by, you know, and it was like, it was just about the excitement of the game that was politics. And sort of, I got really into it, really wanted to go to law school was to be sort of to get involved in the political world. I don't know if I want to be a politician or just more involved. And I realized, but I didn't actually don't want to do the lawyer part. I just yeah. wanted to be involved in politics. And I realized like, well, I have to go to law school. I got to be a lawyer. I don't really want to do that. So what else am I going to do? Well, I got into grad school. I guess I'll go to econ grad school, which was a terrible decision-making process. Going to get a PhD is the biggest commitment you can make in your life. You should never do that in a whim. Is there usually a step between undergrad and a PhD? Or uh, Increasingly, there is. Yeah. When I went, there wasn't. Okay. Increasingly, there is. Today, almost no one goes straight. But back when I went, most Americans, Europeans often got a master's first, but most Americans went straight to grad school. But increasingly, that's not the case. And, and you're and you're and you're saying the decision making process. What about it? Do you think was not right? When I talk to my undergrads now, and they're considering grad school, I say, look, here's the way to think about it. You should only go to grad school if you absolutely love economics and you want to do research economics and you want to live and breathe economics the rest of your life. That wasn't my view. My view was like I kind of like major in economics. There's a lot of interesting policy topics. I like economics. See if something to save them. I guess I'll go to grad school. Looking back now, I'm glad I got a PhD, but. If I was talking to myself at that point, if I was advising someone like me today, I would say go to policy school, like the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. That is a place where if you like economics, but your real passion isn't economic research, but really policy, that's where you should go. So if I had someone give my advice at that point, that's probably where it would have gone. But I didn't have that role. So I figured, well, I'll go get a PhD. Obviously, Expose worked out incredibly well, but I didn't really enjoy it. The first year I almost dropped out. Um, why, why? Because the first year of graduate school is very much the core of economics. The sort of the first year of any graduate program is sort of the hardest. It's sort of like we're going to drill down your throat what you need to know to go do what you want to do. So it wasn't any of the policy stuff I loved. It was proofs of esoteric economic theorems. It was basic economics, which didn't it wasn't what interested me. I liked economics because I could use to solve the world's problems. That's why I wanted to go into economics. I went into economics because ultimately my passion was about policy. My passion was about really I discovered this passion in college for politics and policy and trying to solve the world's problems. And then I'm going, I'm learning, like proving like why this equilibrium is better than equilibrium. I was like, I don't give a shit about this. You yeah. know, what made you stick it out? I didn't really know what else to do. I figured I, I didn't want to drop out at that point. How, how many um, years was the program? 
the program was at that point four to five. So I, I finished my first year. I didn't know what to do, but I did know, I said, look, one thing that's cool that I can do mm -hmm. with this is I can go live somewhere else. So I went and lived in London the summer after my first year and worked at the London School of Economics. I had a pretty good time and it was fun living in London. That was a blast. And I came back for my second year kind of trepidatious, like, well, I'll give this one more year. In fact, I was in London. My then girlfriend, now wife visited me. And I said, look, I need you to promise me something. And you promise me that if I stick out this economics thing, you will not let me be a professor. I don't <laughs> want to go be a professor. That's boring. I want to go work at the Brookings Institution and do policy and to promise me that you'll make me do that. So I came back for my second year, like, look, I'll do what I need to do to go get a job at like the Brookings Institution. And then I got to take the courses where you get to actually apply the shit I learned the first year. And that was awesome. Then I was like, oh, now I understand why I did all this. Because now I'm learning. In particular, I took this amazing class with Larry Summers, who your listeners yep. all know as Secretary of the Treasury, President of Harvard, Obama's head of NEC. Back then, he was just a superstar professor. He was advising Mike Dukakis. So this is fall of 88. He was, yep. His first foray into politics was advising Mike Dukakis. And he was teaching you that year? He was teaching me that year. And I remember coming back to class, spending class telling us about what he told Dukakis. And it was like, oh, now I get it. Yep. Now I understand what I fell in love with economics for. And actually, just to advertise why I think MIT is the best place to go to graduate school, we actually have our students take a class like that their first year. We're the only PhD program in the country which doesn't do what I had to awesome. do at Harvard. I went to Harvard for grad school, which is we actually have people take a fun course their first year so they realize why they're doing it. So basically, I um, my, went back to second year and was like, oh, wow, this is why I'm doing it. Now I'm into it. And I started working with Larry Summers as his research assistant. I started really taking this class and really saying, wow, this is interesting. And then I started getting into research and it's like, wow, research is kind of cool. I like doing research. This is kind of interesting. Yeah. I do research on fun things and not the boring stuff I learned my first year. This will be kind of fun. So that's when I started kind of getting more to the academic track. Did you grow up in a political household? Not really. I mean, my parents are kind of, were kind of middle of the road Republicans. My wife gives me endless shit about the fact that I voted for Reagan in 84. You know, <laughs> I was kind of just a standard want to be rich, middle of the road, suburban kid. My mom is very involved in local causes. My mom has very been passionate about the League of Women Voters. Uh, she's passionate about uh, local environmental issues. She still is. Oh, she's over age 80, and she's still incredibly active in local political issues. So she's very involved in that. So I sort of, in that sense, it was in, it was in the air because she was very involved in local political issues, but never like, we didn't sit around discussing like, should we tax the rich or What's environmental <laughs> policy? You know, that was not, which is like what my kids sat through in their childhood. That was not kind of, we, it wasn't a very political household in that sense. So I really didn't go to college with a passion for politics. It was really discovered it in college. And grad school discovered how I could follow mm -hmm. that, that dream. And then so second, third year-ish is when you get introduced to Larry Summers. Yeah. Was there anything else that's worth mentioning before you got your actual PhD? Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think what's worth mentioning is I had an incredible set of people I worked with. And once again, I mean, the theme through all this, you know, it's very interesting. If I can diverge for one second, one difference between America and Europe, if you ask Americans and Europeans, what share of the credit for success should go to, should go to hard work versus luck? America leads the world in minimizing the role of luck and maximizing the role of hard work. And we're just wrong. I mean, luck plays an incredible role in every single person's success who's successful in the world. There's no one who's successful, which hasn't had a significant element of luck in getting there. I'm not saying that people haven't overcome incredible hardships. I was excessively lucky. There are people who come incredibly hardships to become successful, but luck plays a role. 
And it plays a, a more important role than I think many successfully want to give it credit for. And I, I, I want to break that mold. I was had incredibly supportive parents, grew up in a wealthy household, went to a great school, worked with incredible people in graduate school, not only Larry Summers, but my mother mentor was Josh Angerist, who's now my next door neighbor at MIT and just won the Nobel Prize. Wow. Jim Baturba, who's the president of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Larry Katz, who's one of the world's most famous labor economists. I worked with incredible people. So yes, I worked hard, but I had an incredibly lucky experience. And so through that experience, and then in particular, working with Larry Summers, I started really enjoying research. And in particular, the big turning point was in 19, the early 1990s when I was starting my thesis. The hardest part of graduate school is you finish your classes and then it's like, okay, go write a thesis. Now you're someone like me, who well, I was always a hard worker, but I was always told what to do. I mean, I was never like an independent hard worker. I was just like, okay, go to this assignment. I did it. It was like, okay, now go write a thesis. See you later. I was like, oh my God, it was really sort of tough to like do the self-motivated research. And at that time, um, there was a guy named Harris Wofford who was running for Senate in Pennsylvania in 1990. And he decided to make universal healthcare coverage the sort of the center of his campaign. And then Bill Clinton in running for president started really talking up universal healthcare coverage. And it was like, it was in the air. So I was like, I guess I'll work in healthcare. That seems like a good area. So I started working in healthcare as a researcher, but really importantly, not as a healthcare economist. I mean, my field was called public finance. It was called like the study of the government and the economy. That's what Larry Summers did. And it was sort of as an application of public finance. I never intended to focus my career in healthcare. It was like, look, here's a great area you can apply public finance. And I'm sure I'll apply public finance in lots of areas over my career. And here's the one I'll focus on for now. So that's how I sort of got into healthcare. And that's what I wrote my thesis on. Okay. And then you did what you, you asked your girlfriend to make sure you didn't yes. do. And, you and became a professor. She, she at that point was my wife. And I was like, look, I love doing research. I want to be a professor. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is what I want to do. She's a wonderful woman. She understood that was my passion. I took, got a job at MIT. So uh, that was great. It's the best econ department in the world. And they hired me. So I was super thrilled, got a job there and just put my head down and just worked unbelievably hard at doing research. Still had a passion for policy. For example, one of the chapters in my thesis, which became one of my most well-known publications, was about how when employers provide health insurance to their workers, they don't just do it out of the goodness of their heart. They compensate their workers less in other ways. Mm -hmm. When employers provide health insurance, they give you less wages. That was sort of a supposition that had been really proven. I sort of proved it in an empirical project in my thesis. When Bill Clinton proposed an employer mandate as part of his health care reform, a lot of people said, well, no, that'll kill jobs. And my thesis said, no, it won't. It'll just lower wages. And so I was actually called to testify in D.C. And so that was sort of my first taste of, well, I worked at Brookings summer after my junior and senior years. But then, you know, in 92, 93, I started getting to testify in Washington, D.C., 93, 94. And I like that. And I really sort of the policy bug stayed with me. You know, I was a regular reader of like the New Republic and the New York Times. And I really kind of I did hadn't lost the policy bug, but I was very much in the ivory tower mode. You know, your listeners probably may not know enough about sort of high how like high level academia works, you know, these major research universities. I mean, essentially, teaching is a pretty minor part of the job. Your job really, you know, really in some sense, if you think about a typical, I would say a typical sort of top research university job, about a third of your time is teaching, advising things you do for the university. About two thirds of the time is research. About two thirds of your time, half to two thirds, depending on who you are, is really research and other things like that. And with research, what is valued in promotion in the profession is very much 
research that achieves the respect of your peers. And that's measured by, as I say, publish or perish. It's measured by publishing your research in the most significant journals in the field. And that's what I focused on. I just focused on, I worked incredibly hard all the time from the time I was an undergrad through the time I was professor at MIT. I basically worked all the time except Friday and Saturday nights. Basically, I never did anything. I mean, I take vacations a couple weeks a year. But when I was at work, I just worked except for 6 p.m. on Friday and Saturday night. I just worked. That's all I did. It's what I was raised to do. That's what I did. And I wrote a bunch of articles. you still follow that regimen? Well, it's actually interesting how it changed. So I wrote wrote a bunch of articles and I got tenure quite young because I'd been very successful. Shortly after I got tenure, so I started MIT in 92 in the... I had a, my wife likes to tell the story. It's sort of embarrassing, but it sort of gives a sense of where my head was at, which was in 1994, we had my first child. And when I said, okay, we've had a kid, you've got to start taking more time from work. And I said, okay, I will take either Saturday or Sunday morning off. You can choose. And I'm going to work and I'll continue to take Friday and Saturday night off. And I'll take one more morning off. And look, I was raised by a father who put work first. And that's yeah, what I was yeah. trained to do. And that's what I did. And then we had a second kid in the spring of 1997 and the day my second kid was born, Larry Summers, who was at that point the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, invited me to come work in Washington, D.C., Yep. which I'd never really considered before I had tenure. I had to get tenure first. And that was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. So my wife says, once again, my wife is hilarious. So she says that the only reason that I said, yes, she agreed to do that was I asked her when she was on morphine after our kid was born. I said, hey, <laughs> let's go to Washington, D.C. with a two-year-old about to be three-year-old the newborn she's like sure that'd be great and uh so i went to washington dc in april 1997 with a almost three-year-old and newborn in tow we moved down to tenley town near near american university in washington dc and i started working at the treasury department and i was the deputy assistant secretary for economic policy which is basically like essentially every agency in the government has its own like little think tank but essentially the plaything of the secretary it's like they work on things the secretary is interested in, and that's the shop I was in. And so basically, and you were you were happy about that, I assume, because it was yeah, I was happy about that summer. because basically, like, got to think when I was there, this was like post-reelection pre-Monica, right? For those who are students of the Clinton administration, yeah, it was like the peak of the power of the Clinton administration. And probably Bill Clinton was probably the most important person in the world. Probably the second most important person in the world was Robert Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury, uh, my boss, and probably in the top five is Larry Summers, his deputy. So, and I was working directly with them. I was like their guy when they said, okay, we want to know about X. I went and figured it out. So it was an incredibly fun position. Personally, and you asked about the work schedule, it was also incredibly official personally because this is 1997. The treasury didn't even allow that. You couldn't even get on a web browser in the treasury because of security reasons. I barely had email. Cell phones were sort of new. They were big and clunky. I didn't have a cell phone. And there was not a lot to do on the weekends. So... I started like hanging with my family on the weekends. I was like, wow, this is really fun. Yeah. I really like my kids. And I never worked another weekend the rest of my life. Good and basically, I just kind of decided that like raising my kids and being into my family was really valuable. It's ironic because you talk to people working in Washington now, it's the least family friendly job in the world. These guys <laughs> work 24 seven. The idea that working in Washington connected with my family is sort of crazy compared to today. But it did. I mean, it worked, I didn't see them all week. I worked all the crazy hours of the week, but I spent the whole weekend with them and it was wonderful. And it really sort of changed my attitude towards sort of my family and my kids and was sort of, in some sense, probably marriage saving for me. And I loved working in Washington. I got to work in a ton of fascinating things all over the spectrum from bankruptcy reform to childcare. Probably the thing I worked the hardest on was global warming. 
actually flew to Kyoto to help negotiate the Kyoto Accords in, in the end of 1997. Worked actually only modestly on healthcare. That was probably a quarter of my time was healthcare. Just worked on a bunch of different things, but importantly, made a number of important friends who did work on healthcare. But I miss the academic life and uh, I miss my research. And honestly, started to realize it wasn't as family friendly a job as I wanted. Now that I was starting to my family, I was like, well, I want a job where I can spend more time with my family and I want to see them during the week, which I wasn't really doing at this job. I saw them a lot on the weekends, but, you know, he basically worked all day in the week. And so I said, look, I want to go back to academia. Maybe the most important conversation of my life was there's a famous guy and he was in healthcare. We'll know the name of Chris Jennings. He was Bill Clinton's health policy advisor, basically the guy who championed Clinton healthcare reform and is a major player in healthcare reform even today. And I went to breakfast with him and I was like, look, I want to leave Washington, but I know once I've left Washington, I'm going to leave the policy world. I want to go back to research, but I don't want to be a pure ivory tower guy. I want to sort of a hand in both. And how do you do that? And he said, well, look, you got to realize that once you leave the beltway, you're not going to be involved in minutia. But he said, what we're missing in America in healthcare is people who can provide academic answers that policymakers want to know, not academic answers that policy, that academics want to say. So let me give you a simple example. Let's say there was a young candidate for president or candidate for president named George W. Bush. And George W. Bush had proposed that we give individuals tax credits to buy health insurance. Yep. Now, as an academic, I would say, well, I want to study how price sensitive people are on their health insurance decisions. And I want to estimate the elasticity of health insurance purchase with respect to the price of health insurance. So if George Bush's tax credits get $2,000 off, how many people will buy health insurance? And I could write a paper and estimate that. And I can go to Washington and testify. But the policymakers, they don't give a shit. They want to know if I write this bill, how many folks am I going to cover? And what's it going to cost? And no academics do that. Now, the Congressional Budget Office does that. But the Congressional Budget Office is something which is when you've written the law, they tell you what it's going to cost. When you're developing the law, academics don't really help you with that. They just say, well, on the this this is the elasticity. See you later. And what Chris made me realize was there was a role to play that bridge yep. between the ivory tower research I'd spent my life doing and what policymakers actually want to know. And the way to play that bridge was developing the tool of what's called micro simulation modeling, which is basically developing computer models to essentially take the academic research that I'd done and others had done to give the answers to the question the policymakers actually want to know, not the answers I wanted to give them. And that was really the fundamental change in my life that I moved from spending all my time doing academic research to half my time doing research at Advance the Frontier and half my time explaining to policymakers what that research meant. And that was the real fundamental when my career really shifted. You had said something before that, I guess in 92, when Clinton was running, there was talk from his side about transforming American healthcare model, sure. universal healthcare. So basically, if we go back to the history of healthcare reform in the US, essentially, it started with Teddy Roosevelt, who tried to have universal health care coverage in America. And every, I think it's every 18 years on average, until Barack Obama, there had been a major push for health care reform. The last one for Obama, Nixon tried it. Um, and the last for Obama was Clinton. And fam famously, Hillary Clinton ran this. Uh, and it, was a it, wasn't, it was called Hillary Care, right? It was called Hillary Care uh, in a derogatory sense. But it was a major effort that a number of my friends uh, were involved in. It had died by the time I went to Washington. But it was a major effort to transform healthcare. It was going on when I was still a young professor and influenced my research a lot. 
by the time I got to Washington, it was sort of dead. And I worked on other things to try to pieces of it still lived. And I worked on passing those pieces of it. But that was kind of, um, you know, a very influential experience on those who think about policy reform. So what was the policy proposal during the Clinton administration, full 100% Bernie Sanders style universal health care? No. So what's, here's what's fascinating about healthcare reform, which is that, and by the way, I have a TED talk that folks can watch that sort of gives like a 15 minute version of the history of healthcare. We'll, we'll put that out with this. But basically we tried to reform healthcare every 18 years. And every time we tried, we moved further to the right. The proposals at the early part of the 20th century were for a, we call it a Canadian style, single payer government run system. By the time Clinton proposed, that was off the table. Clinton's proposal was for a government organized a private insurance insurer run healthcare system. Isn't that but what Obamacare is? Well, very different. The difference here was the fundamental difference was the government would set the rules, the road, the government would regulate the prices providers uh, could get, the government would set the whole would set the whole system, including providing universal coverage. I think the lesson coming out of the Clinton healthcare reform was essentially you could think about healthcare reform as trying to accomplish two goals. One goal is covering people. The other goal was fixing the broken delivery system of healthcare. The first goal involves spending money to help people. The second goal involves taking money away from people. Yeah. So the first goal is a lot easier. And that the fundamental flaw that healthcare reformers had made for 100 years was tying them together. And they didn't have to be tied together. You could get to universal coverage without fixing the broken healthcare system. And indeed, there was stronger to make that we'd never get to fix the broken healthcare system until we first dealt with the coverage problem. That how do you fix a healthcare system when 50 million people are outside of it? You get everyone in the system, then you fix it. And Got that it. was the lesson coming out of the Clinton failure. And that when, was the lesson that ultimately influenced Mitt Romney and became Romney Care. Well, I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the Affordable Care Act, because very interesting how then Barack Obama ended up running against Mitt Romney. And yeah. they both had ideas for, for universal coverage. Just to put a button on the in the Clinton administration with health care. Why did it never get done? It never got done because it was basically too much for the political system to handle. It's quite simple, actually, but it's taken me a whole career to realize this. I didn't realize this a few years ago, which is that basically people often talk about why is healthcare so much cheaper in Europe than it is here? And the answer is quite simple. We're the only healthcare system in the world that lets the free market set the prices for healthcare goods. It's a broken market. You know, when I teach my basic economics to my, when I teach my introductory economics lectures, which just started for this fall for probably the 15th time, I say, look, we start with a model where the market works. And in that model, the market should set all the prices. But when the market doesn't work, there's a role for government. And that's sort of the focus of, I teach a course called public finance, my other elective. I've, I've, I've written the textbook uh, for public finance. Wow. Now, now my seventh edition. And that's all about the fact that when the market doesn't work, there's a role for government. And there's no market that works worse than markets for healthcare. I mean, people don't know anything about what they're shopping for. Doctors have all the incentive to charge as much as they can to try to squeeze money out of people. It's a fundamentally broken market. And every other country in the world, every developed country in the world has realized that, and they regulate the prices that are paid. The U.S. is the only place that doesn't. The problem is if they regulate the price they're paid, they're going to lower them. There's a famous economist, Uwe Reinhardt, and Uwe Reinhardt's first law was Healthcare costs equal healthcare income. If you're going to lower healthcare costs, someone's income is going to fall. And sure. that person is going to lobby against it. So fixing the healthcare delivery system is very, very hard. It's hard to actually do. And the Clinton healthcare reform was thousands and thousands of pages. The fundamental difference was the Clinton healthcare reform wanted to take over the insurance industry. They still want a role for private insurers, but a much more modest role. And the insurance industry went to war. Sorry, John. I, I just am curious. 
Do you think that's why the Obama administration didn't even have that fight? It's a fight. If you have that fight, you lose. Look, so they were, co- they were cognizant of that. Yeah, I mean, and I talk about it in my TED talk. I won't go into it here. But, you know, I talk about why single payer can't happen in America in the near future. And one reason is we have a one trillion dollar private health insurance industry. Yeah. OK, that's not going away. They're not going to say, hey, it's been a good run. We're out. You know, yeah. that's not going away. There's no way you're going to beat that industry politically. There's no way you're going to wipe out that industry. And so people who think you can do that are just living with their heads in the sky. We bail out industries a third that size all the time. Yeah. You want to wipe out a trillion dollar industry? No way. And I think that's why people say, oh, you know, Obama should have taken on the insurance industry. If he did, there wouldn't have, we wouldn't have covered 20 million Americans with health insurance. It's that simple. So I think the bottom line is that the Obama administration realized that politically you can't take on the insurance industry and win. But that doesn't mean you can't get to universal coverage. And the realization was so basically I think of Obamacare as essentially the most politically feasible way. Basically, Obamacare was within the political strengths we faced, how can we cover the most people? So just I want to talk about Obamacare, but with with Romney care, yeah. Was it was it the goal of Romney and his crew to get everybody in Massachusetts covered? Yes. And we did pretty well. We got the uninsurance rate in Massachusetts down to three percent compared to 18% nationally. Why why do you think then in 2012 that he ran against the Affordable Care Act? Was it purely politics? You know, look, in the 2008 election, people would call me and say, try to get me to badmouth Romney. I wouldn't. Because yeah. I think Romney is the fundamental hero of health care reform. Mitt Romney, if there's one person responsible for the Affordable Care Act in America, it's Mitt Romney. I think if we and don't he, do and, that, he lo- and he looks like, whether or not people agree with him politically, he looks like a decent person. You know, honestly, when I met with him the first time other than I came out, I was like, this man's going to be president. I mean, he's the most physically beautiful person I've ever been in the president. <laughs> he's incredibly well-spoken, incredibly nice. He, he should have, you know, he should have been a Republican candidate for president. He probably should have won president uh, if he'd run 10 or 15, 10 or 20 years early. We had a more sensible Republican Party, a more centrist Republican Party. Yeah, agreed. Um, but basically, once he started bad-mouthing the law, I was like, look. So actually, in 2012, I had a blast because I just go on TV all the time. And get to say the truth, which is Mitt Romney's hero of healthcare reform. He didn't want to hear it. He tried pretending he didn't know me, and they brought out clips of him thanking me at the speech when when the, when the healthcare bill got. So it's passed. an interesting, it's an interesting role you played because this was after the Affordable Care Act got passed. You worked on yeah. Romney Care. You worked yeah. on the Affordable Care Act. I can imagine that your your opinions were in high demand. Yeah. No. I mean, look, I worked with the Republican governor. I was not. Look, I was always a Democrat. I call myself a slightly left of center. As of where the center was circa 2005. Yep. The center was circa 2005. I, look, I was not a George Bush fan, but I, I, you know, I didn't think everything he did was crazy. You know, I, I was a, I was a slightly left of center. You know, probably if you think of, you know, I was not not what you call progressive by any stretch of the imagination. And so I was pleased to work with Republican Democrats. I went on Fox News all the time. Yeah, you know, I remember I was, that. Yeah, and so I was pleased to work with Republicans and Democrats. What happened was. And remember, the individual mandate was a Republican idea. The individual mandate was developed when the Republicans wanted to post Clinton in the early 90s. They had been individual mandate in opposition to what Clinton wanted, which was an employer mandate. Would that have meant, John, that employers would stop providing coverage to their employees? That, not necessarily. That was the concern. Actually, we passed healthcare for in Massachusetts with individual mandate. The biggest criticism we got was from the AFL-CIO, from the left, saying you're going to kill employer insurance. Actually, the opposite happened. Employer insurance went up because people went to their employers that I have to have health insurance now. I want it from my employer. Give it to me. Actually, everyone predicted, including myself, predicted employer insurance would go down in Massachusetts. It actually went up. So basically because people like insurance from the employers. 
but we put the requirement on people. And the problem was, and remember when Barack Obama ran for students of healthcare policy, they'll remember when he ran, Hillary was the one who was for the individual mandate. He was against it. I was actually on team Hillary when Obama know. ran in 2008, because Hillary was the one who said, let's do the Massachusetts plan. Obama said, no, I don't want the individual mandate. But to his credit, when he got elected, he's like, actually, it looks like this works. Let's do it. I mean, yeah. I think he does not get nearly enough credit for adopting a Republican idea at, that he'd run against as president because he saw it worked. It's, I've asked this question all the time. He basically rolled out a big piece of a state-ran Republican health care plan. Yeah. And they conceded on a ton. I mean, you talked about the which is interesting in the Clinton administration where they wanted government to set the pricing. He didn't want any part of that or the administration didn't want any part of it. Why the vehement opposition then? If a lot of this came from a Republican governor, some of the ideas may have come from a, a previous Republican president. Was it purely, purely politics? Look, I'm not a political scientist. And when I talk about politics, I get in trouble. But I don't see how you can draw any other conclusion. At the bill signing in 2006. Were you there? I was there. Mitt Romney, Ted Kennedy, and a speaker from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing wow. think tank, talking about how wonderful this bill was. Yeah. Once Obama said, okay, fine, I'll endorse the individual mandate, all of a sudden it was the devil's work. How can you see that as anything but pure politics? It's, I think it's, it's an incredibly sad, uh, for better or worse, actually, for worse. 2010, when the Affordable Care Act passed, was sort of, I think, the pivotal moment when America sort of, American politics really started going off the rails. Because yeah. that was the point at which sort of this, in some sense, Republican idea adopted by a Democrat, Mitt Romney should have been a hero. He couldn't even, he couldn't get the support of much of the Republican Party for something which should have made him the greatest, one of the great heroes in American history. I don't think that my views moved. It's just my left of center position became progressive because yeah. the center moved. Yeah. And basically, in some sense, I don't think Obama, I don't think Romney gets enough credit. I don't think Obama gets enough credit for adopting a Republican idea. And certainly, I don't think people give enough credit to the fact that this was really, I call it the most bipartisan, partisan bill in American history. This is a bipartisan bill. The bill was actually written. So I was very involved, you know, in the, in sort of the process of developing the bill. The bill was written, literally written. Obama laid out a set of principles that handed it to Congress. The bill was written by a committee of three Republicans and three Democrats on the finance committee. They wrote the bill. It was all set. And then the summer of 2009 happened and Republicans went home and the Tea Party movement happened. And all of a sudden, yep. Republicans said, wow, we can't support this. And it became a Democrat bill. There's still pieces in the law that I can point to that Republican staffers wrote. Why do you think so long, even in 2022, that we don't have a public option yet? Because, quite frankly, uh, if you think about what the public option is supposed to do, it's supposed to essentially eat into private insurance with public insurance and the private insurers are powerful. It's that simple. I mean, it would, it would just make them have to be more competitive. Yeah, right? well, no, it would steal. It, they would lose business. There's no doubt. Now, they don't like that and they don't want it. So they fight it and they win. I mean, it's just it's not. Once again, I feel like what frustrates me almost more than conservative opposition to the Affordable Care Act. Remember, the Affordable Care Act passed. It was unpopular. We know that. What we don't know is if you look at why it was unpopular, half of the people who didn't like it didn't like it because it went too far. Half the people didn't like because it, it didn't go far enough. So basically, a lot of the opposition was from the left. That almost bothers me more. I mean, this yes. was probably the greatest victory for social justice since since the Great Society in America, and yet a ton of the Democrat Party didn't like it because they felt it didn't go far enough, and that drives me crazy. Which is they're just not being realistic about the politics, the constraints that were faced by this by this effort.
it's interesting because you, you mentioned the Tea Party and, and maybe I'm being a little bit general here, but a lot of the things that, that the Affordable Care Act did helped a lot of people that were convinced to oppose it. Look at the people who are uninsured in America. They're not the poorest people, okay? The poorest people get public insurance. It's really the working poor are the people who struggle the most with getting health insurance in America. And the working poor are the people who turned in massive numbers to the Republican Party. How do you define the working poor? So people making, say, people working at jobs where they're making a living, but they aren't making enough to save. They don't have jobs that offer health insurance. The vast majority of them, you know, people making, you know, twenty-five to $60,000 a year, the sort of middle of the earnings distribution. People who are doing valuable jobs, they're first responders, they're the people we de depend on in so many ways in our, in, in our world. My daughter's an EMT. She, she makes at the bottom of that range. Okay. You know, basically, these are people who do incredibly value jobs in our society who are the ones who, in many ways, benefit the most from a lot of things Obama did. And it's just sort of, I think, a sad story that turned away from that. So they're getting squeezed out because their employers won't give them health care. Exactly. Private insurance is just too expensive for them. Right. And the, but what we've done is we set up these exchanges with tax credits to allow them to afford health insurance. So someone who's earning $30,000 a year can now get health insurance for, you know, less than a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. Whereas, and basically that's because of the Affordable Care Act. And yet people don't appreciate it. It's unfortunate it became such a turning point in the way politics works in America. I think it still was worth the fight, though. You know, I, I think there's a lot of Democrats who would say no to this. Really? I think it was. I think a lot of Democrats. Look, it cost the Democrats Congress for 10 years. It led to Trump. I mean, I think it played a fundamental role in, you know, I hate yes. to say it, but if the Affordable Care Act hadn't passed, is there more of a chance that Trump might not have won? I, I, I think it certainly helped him. So it's I think funny because he Democrats, sit on the debate stage saying yeah. that he wants everybody to have health care. Yeah, I, he, but he lied. I mean, he had no plan for that. I think it was worth it, but I, I, I think there's a lot of fellow Democrats who might not agree with me. And I know Obama's talked about that a lot. I wanted to ask you what your interactions were like with Obama. Did you spend a lot of time with him? Would you more spend time with a lot of his people? What was that like? I only was with Obama. I only met Obama twice before the law passed and once since the law passed. Okay. Uh, I met him once when he was running for president, sort of gave him a tutorial on Massachusetts health care reform. That's and interesting. Once, Where did you do that? Uh, in his Senate offices when he was senator. Had he, he announced taking... his, had he announced that he was going to run at that point? Not yet. It was clear he was going to run. He kept taking breaks every 10 minutes to go smoke. People don't realize what a big smoker he was. He was. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so he he didn't say to you, I'm going to run for president, but no. you, you, you knew. It was pretty clear he was kind of, I flew down to D.C. on my dime to go okay. get a tutorial on healthcare policy in Massachusetts. And, and when, you left that in, when you left that first interaction with him, do you remember what you thought about him? Yeah, I thought he was very, very smart, very intellectually curious, really interested in this. I thought he didn't know a whole lot about healthcare. That was clearly a new area for him. But that he really was interested. He was very practical. He was interested in knowing what worked. He was interested in knowing kind of the nuts and bolts of kind of how does something like this work. From he was interested in learning. And then your next interaction with him was when? Two thousand nine, when the law was being written, he had a meeting of some economists in the White House in his in the Oval Office to talk about uh, some issues with writing. Was that your first time in the White House? Oh no, I went a bunch when when I worked there. I worked in the Clinton administration, so I went a bunch when I was. Oh, there. that's because of the Treasury. Yes, that's sure, right. I was the only time ever in a meeting in the Oval Office. Was that um, that was your first time in the Oval Office? Yeah. What was that like? The best part of that is the story. When I got the calls going to the Oval Office, I was driving my kids back from the beach, and they got the calls. They want you to come down this week and meet with the president. And I told my kids, and my then ten-year-old uh, daughter said, "Well, are you going to go meet with them alone?" I said, "No, it'll be about six of us meeting with them." She said, "That's not that impressive then." <laughs> 
So just to remember, remember kids keep you honest. It was great. It was a really good meeting. He just clearly was interested in getting it right, but he also was smart about the politics. He would say, well, look, here's our constraints. What should we do given these constraints? He was a policy wonk. And what policy wonks do, you know, my, my colleagues who don't work in policy say, like, how can you work in policy? It's so frustrating the politics. I view it as an extra layer of challenge that you have to sort of figure out. It makes yeah. the problem more interesting, not less interesting, which is, you know, you basically say, okay, well, how do I do this within a set of constraints? I'm not saying it's not frustrating as hell, but what I liked about Obama is he wanted to do the right thing within the constraints he was given. And that was, I think, really impressive. I'm going to let you go. I really enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate all the insight that you gave us. We'll we'll send you information. And for a lot of our healthcare listeners who are, who are going to love this, I mean, we do 10 to 15 healthcare events a year. So it'd be good to get you to one of them. Sure. All corporate level healthcare executives. John, I, I could have gone on for at least another 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, that was and, great. Look, I mean, how can you not enjoy talking? Who doesn't like talking about themselves? Uh, <laughs> you know, it was fine. Uh, it was great. I hope it was helpful. I'm, I, I Once again, I'm sorry we spent so long on like my background. We didn't really. Oh, no, no. That's part, stuff, but, that, that, that's part of the program. But yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. John Gruber, everybody. His episode, we'll, we'll post his TED Talk, some other pieces of stuff that he's written. You can see he's very direct, very forthright, very passionate. We're lucky to have him on the podcast. And we will see you at one of, a Millennium, one of our Millennium Lions events, hopefully next year. That sounds great. I look forward to it. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.